a Chinese speaker is on the outside of a room and a non-Chinese English speaker is on the inside of the room. And the Chinese speaker passes a sentence written in Chinese characters through like a slot in the door. The English speaker picks it up, looks at it, has no idea what it says. But the English speaker inside the room has a instruction manual or a uh, some sort of manual that they can look up exactly the phrase. It's very long. They can look up this exact phrase and they can see the appropriate response in characters. Again, they have no idea what the characters mean, but they can write out the appropriate response, pass that back through the door, and the Chinese speaker on the other side picks it up, reads it, and would believe that a person inside the room can speak Chinese. Um, and so the question becomes, is that what an artificial intelligence is doing, essentially, who we've taught um, appropriate responses? Welcome, Techno Sapiens, to episode 241 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Alexander Weinstein's 2010 short story and Kaganada's 2022 film, After Yang. So, James, I have an admission I need to make to you. What's that? I have been a robot all <laughs> along. <laughs> You're just a companion that was that was bought for me at some point. Yeah. So that I could understand film and literature <laughs> culture. Yeah, I was uh, purchased to be a, a, a companion to talk to you about books, um, which I read but don't actually understand. Um, I just I just mimic things. Yeah, that's kind of what this story is all about. AI and what it means to be a person and what it means to be sentient. And I find these topics super fascinating. Uh, I have a short story out in Reckoning 6 that is a lot about AI and what it means to be a person. So I, ca I found myself thinking about that and my story a lot when I was watching this one and reading this short story. Um, so pretty cool, honestly. This is this is definitely my shit, and I found this uh, this whole thing to be really interesting. I, I was thinking about that, too, because I, you know, I went to that reading that you did of your story, and our, our conversations of... AI go back to like Blade Runner and do mm -hmm. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which was very, like 2017 for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like we've always found a way to sort of navigate the topic because each time the story is exploring something different. But this one really is, it's not as much about the perspective of the AI. It's more about what humans are perceiving it as. And I don't know, it's just this really beautiful story about how like we can see existence in things that we've created but this this story is like introspective like it's a human sort of thinking about what humanity means and it's a human who i i would argue is kind of struggling with being tethered to to the world and what it means to be alive on his own and then seeing that reflected in in what what he perceives sometimes as a machine and and just the way that like these ai and like um virtual assistants and all of these things like what where the line is drawn when when existence and humanity end and begin, kind of. 
Yeah, the uh, the short story and the movie, I would argue, handle it a little bit differently and have like a little bit different of a focus. Um, when you're talking about like the perspective of the AI, I think you get more of that in the movie and that is expanded on um, partly because, you know, you're trying to fill a one and a half hour movie, so you kind of have to, but it does change the focus a little bit because the short story, as you said, is is much more tied to the human perspective that ends up changing the message a little bit. So that's something that we can we can sort of dive into for each. Um, for for this coverage, we're going to talk about the short story first, uh, as we usually do, and then we'll move into the movie. The short story follows, well, I guess the film follows the short story somewhat. Um, there's some pretty major changes, but the, describing the short story will be a pretty good spoiler for the movie. So it's difficult for us to talk about this in a very spoiler-free way. So I guess the only real uh, uh, talk we have about it that's that's completely spoiler-free would be right now. So what were your general thoughts, I guess, on both? I think that this story has a great premise because it is diff- it's that different perspective on AI that we haven't seen explored in this way. And I think we've seen, you think of like a Deckard who is like, seemingly a human perspective talking about blade runner or do androids dream of electric sheep right and the way that he's interacting with the world but this is something much more like in the home and it feels more like relatable and it feels more like something you could see happening in the near future the future of this story and and the the movie to an extent as well it feels quite attainable. It feels like mm-hmm. this might be where we're headed. And in fact, I would say it is also kind of a utopian concept of future, especially in the right. movie. Yeah, and I like that idea that we like we we can find a way to to these things that we're so so worried about um, giving away privacies and allowing these devices in our home. Which I think the movie touches back in on that that worry of giving up these privacies and allowing sure. these devices created by c- corporations in your home. But uh, just just the way that the story is like internal and it's, I could see it being very useful to have uh, an assistant or really a, another person in the family yeah. who, who you can like sort of, I don't know. It feels weird when you're buying somebody like this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, absolutely. That's like the core question is, is Yang a person? And if he is a person, then his existence is sort of inherently slavery, right? Like we've, that the family has purchased him for a purpose. And even if he sort of enjoys his role, it's messed up. Now, honestly, the story doesn't, that's not really what the story's about, but that is, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the many questions I think that gets raised. Yeah. Um, it, it, as we, as we try and decide for ourselves, is this person? Yeah. And within the story, I, I just love the way that it progresses, right? Like we, we get this scene where something happens and then Yang needs to be repaired. And then uh, along the way, we see what someone would normally perceive as going to get a computer or device fixed. Yeah. And the way that that sort of changes over the course of the story, I thought was really, really ingenious. Yeah. That's like kind of a satirical element that is present in the story that is also present in the movie. But I think it's it's because of its, I guess, page time, um, maybe a little more prominent in the story is there's sort of a satire going on here too. Like a little Mm -hmm. bit of skewering of, modern society or or yeah i don't know like i'm i'm this isn't a spoiler but like the main character in the short story works at a whole foods and his wife works at a crate and barrel 
Yeah. And they're both like white liberals too, which has changed a little bit for the movie. So, so th- this feels like it's poking fun a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, uh, there was, there was a little bit of that too with, they were, their reasoning for wanting to adopt a Chinese child was like to add some diversity to their lives. And, and yeah. they they were so privileged in their upbringing and everything they yeah. wanted to like sort of give back. And I was, I was like, whoa, they don't want to actually like teach the kid anything about Chinese culture so they bring in this assistant to do so that's sort of the premise of the story right they brought in this assistant AI called Yang who is from this I think it's called Big Brothers or something Brothers and Sisters that is designed to teach culture which is inherently kind of absurd right but designed to teach culture to um, their daughter who is an adopted daughter herself Um, there's also this really interesting thing where it's played against the idea of cloning because uh, all cloning seems to be the the big thing that a lot of families are doing. We don't get that explored fully, but um, they are against it. It seems like in this family. I, I love the reasoning too. They, they they go on to say like something about how they're not egocentric enough to want to clone themselves uh, to be their own child. They wanted to sort of go elsewhere. Right. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting commentary as well. And, and there's a few characters we meet along the way who sort of push back against that. We have yeah. the neighbor who, who has clones as children. Yeah, and, the neighbor's a really interesting character, actually. Uh, yeah. You know, which I think that's starting to get into spoiler territory. So before we get into, into all of that, I guess I'll give my thoughts. I found this story to be reminiscent of a Ted Chang story, perhaps. Um, I didn't find the prose to be on quite on his level. Um, I don't, you know, no insult to Weinstein because few of us are. Um, I found the prose to be very straightforward, though, and approachable. And the writing had a nice sort of satirical bent that reminded me a little bit of Saunders, which I read is one of his influences. But there was like a poignancy and, a, and an emotion behind it, too, that um, I've seen him compare it to Emily St. John Mandel. Um, which is another one we, uh, we've covered on the podcast and we both really liked. And um, I can see that comparison a little bit. I, I don't think I've read enough of her stuff to maybe make that jump. Like I've just read uh, Station Eleven and I didn't see a lot of Station Eleven in this story, but, you know, they're very different subject matters. Um, hit one of his big influences in, a, in an interview I watched for him was uh, Charlie Kaufman which is another yeah. favorite of the podcast. Absolutely. Felt that influence for sure. Yeah. So it's really cool to see the connections to all these different things. And then I kept thinking about Philip K. Dick, who we've already mentioned with Blade Runner mm-hmm. and how um, it's a short story being turned into a movie that honestly is fairly different, but at the core about the same thing, much like Blade Runner. Um, so even though the the sort of genre is slightly different, um it's interesting to think of them that way too. Uh, you know, I, I was recently at Worldcon in Chicago, and the topic of adaptations was something we discussed, and it, it had me thinking about how different it is to adapt a novel versus a short story, and to take a novel and compress it into a into a movie versus take a short story and expand it into a movie, right? And how you're going to get two very different results, and there's a different amount of space for the director to come in and really try something different. Um, and here we get that expansion effect for the movie, which um, real quick, I, I found to be beautiful. Um, I have a few quibbles and criticisms of it that I think hold it back a little bit. Um, but overall, you know, I enjoyed watching it. It is a very melancholy film. 
yeah, you would want, I guess you need to be in the right mood to watch it, be ready for like a melancholy um, exploration of humanity and what it means to be human. And that's my shit. Like, I love that. But even still, I found, I found the tone to be kind of one note after, after an initial, we'll get into it, but like, <laughs> it, it did something interesting early and then it kind of shifted into this like melancholy tone that just stayed throughout the rest of the movie. And like, even though I'm someone who loves that and I feel like I'm the target audience, I still found it to be a little one note. So again, I have some criticisms of it, but overall, A24 film, very interesting, well-made, beautiful. Um, there's a lot to like here. So it, it would ultimately be a movie I recommend, a short story I recommend. It's, you know, they have slightly different goals. And I think you, this is one where you would definitely be safe to read the short story first, even though it kind of spoils the movie. This, the movie's very different. So I think you could go into the movie and still really enjoy yourself and not worry about spoilers. Just to talk about the movie a little bit, I was I was blown away. I think the big stopping point for people on this film would be just that it is, even with the shorter length that it has, it is very intentionally slow. Yeah. And I think that that is something that you said, you have to be in the right mood for it. And I'll admit when I first started it, I don't know that I was in the right mood for it, but at some point I like gave myself over to it. It, it does change the messaging of the story some. Um, I thought it was shot brilliantly. It's just, it's striking. And I found myself looking at a lot of the lighting choices with like natural lighting. And there were like warmer colors in the home, which made it feel more welcoming. And just the, there, there are some like aspect ratio things that I got nerdy about when like memories were being thought of and like some softer looks and even when they're using like communication devices it's not super clear right away because of the way that they're shooting it but I kind of appreciated it for that like it took me a second some of the time Um, but it's just a lot of really cool techniques and and in learning about the filmmaker I learned that um, Yasujiro Ozu probably one of the most influential Japanese filmmakers ever is like a big influence and he's also known for his very um slow paced films that are uh, very introspective and and they're asking you to sort of dig into what's being what's being um, shown before you and Kaganada is a video essayist basically who has become a filmmaker as well and really always was a filmmaker but um, some of his stuff you've probably seen uh, if you watch a lot of like film essays which I know both of us do he actually in like some of the courses that I teach in and stuff like his his material has been used um, just to show. I know there's a really famous one about Wes Anderson and symmetry. Like he does a lot of editing and it's really cool. I watched an Ozu one that he released and just showing the 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 styles, the styles of a filmmaker that like make them memorable and make them different from other people and and showing them off not even necessarily by narrating it or anything like that some of the time he does do that but there are other times where he just sort of lets the scenes play out and is highlighting these things wow so he's still he's still releasing video essays i i think so but but well i mean i'll get into it a little bit but what's really cool is that he started out doing the essays on his own yeah online releasing them i think he was pursuing a phd in film and then eventually he was contacted by like the British Film Institute, the Criterion Collection, um, Sight and Sound magazine, and they commissioned him to create fi- like videos about uh, some famous films and things like that. Like, like a Criterion Collection, they have if you're a member of the Criterion Channel, they have little little uh, video essays basically all within that will talk about some of the films. And I know he's worked on a few of those. So to see someone like this who's a student of film in the way that I strive to be a student of film, to to you know 
understand the styles, understand what makes people memorable and understand what you can do with film. And then to become a filmmaker, I think is just the coolest thing ever. I'm so, I can't wait to talk more about this person because he's, he's just, I'm so, uh, <laughs> I'm so impressed. All right. So let's dive into the short story then. It sounds like we're ready. Um, it will be somewhat spoilery for the movie. The short story is basically just about this family, right? We've already talked about they bring in Yang, who is this uh, assistant, and it opens with Yang malfunctioning and splashing his face into his cereal. And that's when we're first um, introduced the idea of him being this um, technological being. And, they, you know, uh, I think it's Mika and both, right? Uh, the daughter gets pulled away and uh, the father, whose name is Jake in the movie, I think it might be the same in the short story, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, he might not be named, I'm not sure, um, is dealing with him and trying to figure out what's going on with him. And the whole story is basically him trying to get Yang repaired. Uh, he ends up going to a couple of different places. Quick Fix, which is the Geek Squad-esque style uh, fixer-upper uh, place. Yeah, I was getting big Best Buy vibes from it. The order, though, is important, I think, because initially his neighbor, George, I believe, says, like, hey, take him to this guy. Tell him you know me, and he'll give yep. you you know, a, a break. It'll be like a third of the price. Right, and he does that first in the sh- in the short story. And so he goes to like this mechanic, basically, like what you would think of. And and in the short story, it's really interesting because he's kind of wrapped up in a lot of like conservative ideals. Yeah. And, and the way that that there are like racist uh, posters, I guess, or things that he's written that, that and then there's like guns and ammo and like all these magazines in the in the waiting room. And yeah, he, he keeps thinking about how this isn't someone I would usually associate with. Yeah. Right. And then uh, and then eventually he goes to this Geek, geek Squad-esque uh, place and he's like, I feel much more comfortable with their like buttoned up sort of like, you know, corporate uh, like with a smile service with a smile kind of thing, even though they're not able to necessarily do much. So, yeah. And they're going to charge him a lot more to do basically nothing. Um, same stuff basically for both. Um, so ultimately he ends up deciding, even though he initially is resistant to it. Um, he, he decides to bury Yang, but, um, extract the voice box and have sort of a personal assistant style voice that his daughter can interact with at the end of the story. And the story basically ends with the daughter interacting with Yang and him thinking about how he doesn't really know anything about the world. Well, and one of the major things here, too, is the neighbor, right? Like, he keeps thinking of this neighbor as sort of ridiculous. He paints his face for Super Bowl and, and sporting events, and he's, like, kind of... He has clone children, and he just doesn't... He doesn't really see himself connecting with this person, but this person's clearly, like, going out of their way to, you know... Continues be a, to be more thoughtful than he gives him credit for and, and respect Yang's position that Yang had in their family. Right, and, and was sort of asking, was inquisitive, was caring, and then sent flowers at the end. And then it was a big deal that like he, he finally understood the neighbor in a sense and, and thought about like the existence and what it means to interact with these people. And then they put the flowers near Yang, who is now this like a virtual assistant. And he sort of, I like the last line is, he, he thought about how he didn't know much about the world. So the last line uh, that you're referring to says, wow, that's amazing, Kyra says, and I stand next to her looking at the flowers George sent, acknowledging how little I truly knew about this world. So uh, Kyra is, I believe, his wife, and George is the neighbor. Yeah, so he's, like, realized that he doesn't know a lot, and I think he's embracing the unknown, and he's embracing 
the question. Um, not only about Yang, but also just about what he thinks he knows. Um, I think just in general, his sort of perceptions and um, beliefs. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, again, I feel like a slightly different place than what we end on in the movie, um, which we can get to. But one thing that I kept thinking about with this story is the um, Chinese room thought experiment. Are you familiar with this thought experiment? I think I just uh, was exposed to it recently. We may have sent it back and forth to each other, but it's basically there's someone who only speaks Chinese. Is you're trapped in a room. The person on the other side of the door. Yeah. Well, I can I can explain what yeah. how, how it is. Go it sounds it. like you have somewhat of an understanding of it. Yeah, this may have come up in another story or something we read. I was trying to remember if maybe it was even in um, the story of your life. It might have been. Anyway, so because it's somewhat about language, but really it's about artificial intelligence. So. Uh, First off, let's start with the Turing test. Everybody's sort of familiar with the Turing test, right? Like an artificial intelligence that is sufficiently advanced enough to convince a person that it is a person. Um, that was the test proposed by this, I think his name's like... Alan Turing. Alan Turing. Yeah. Um, back in the day. And and um, this is something that his his argument was... The only reason we perceive people to be human is because of their behavior. So if the behavior is sufficient enough to convince us, then it doesn't matter whether or not they truly are, quote unquote, and that's sufficient. They are now essentially human. So the Chinese thought experiment is a more modern, um, not really a counter, but it's it's a separate argument that does kind of run counter. And the idea is that um, a Chinese speaker is on the outside of a room and a non-Chinese English speaker is on the inside of the room. And the Chinese speaker passes a, uh, a sentence written in Chinese characters through like a slot in the door. The English speaker picks it up, looks at it, has no idea what it says. But the English speaker inside the room has a instruction manual or a uh, some sort of manual that they can look up exactly the phrase it's very long they can look up this exact phrase and they can see the appropriate response in characters again they have no idea what the characters mean but they can write out the appropriate response pass that back through the door and the chinese speaker on the other side picks it up reads it and would believe that a person inside the room can speak chinese um and so the question becomes is that what an artificial intelligence is doing, essentially, who we've taught um, appropriate responses? But the question is about what is what is understanding? What is the threshold at which we would say the person inside the room now understands Chinese? If they functionally are able to respond, you know, this is kind of an uh, impossible scenario because they would have to have an infinite number of responses. But say they do, or a sufficient amount, right? Can you say that the person inside ever truly understands Chinese if all they're ever doing is sort of mechanically looking up the response and, and sending it out? Right. I think that that, that um, is a good example of, of for, for me, I think of that and I'm like, no, but there is a threshold that at some point, if you do that long enough, maybe you do start to pick up on some of what's happening there and it eventually can develop into understanding Chinese. You know so, what I mean? And that's why I think it's the thought experiment specifically says, and I, I maybe should have said this, you're in a blank room. You have no 
um, interaction with the person outside. So all you're getting is characters and spitting out characters. There is no other stimulus. And that's important because I think that takes away the potential for the person to ever truly learn understanding, right? Because if you had context clues, if you could see the person, then you could start to say like, oh, because this is how we had learned language, right? You see what they want and you can say like, oh, okay, they seem to be dealing with this object that I don't have a name for, but they're, you know, this, it seems like this symbol refers to that. So right. you start to learn. Well, to, to relate it to AI, I just think at some point, the development of regurgitating these commands that we've programmed them with. At some point, if they do understand and truly can understand Chinese, or in this case, understand emotions or like functionally understand what it means to, you know, be alive and to, to sort of respond, I guess it's harder to relate it to AI when you start thinking about it like that. But my, uh, my question is just like, at how long does this go on for? Because if it goes on forever, you would think at some point, some pieces and parts would be able to be deciphered just based on repetition or something or or guesswork. You know what I mean? And at some point that guesswork could become knowledge. I mean, maybe. I guess it, it are, if you don't have any true interaction with the other person, though, and you have nothing to base it on. You're, all you're doing is spitting that. I don't know how you could actually learn anything from that. But regardless, okay, so, so the point of this thought experiment is to try and say, like, that entity, that person inside the room is not ever actually conscious of what they're doing, mm -hmm. right? And so the argument then being artificial intelligence, if, it is, if this is what it is, is not actually a person. It's not actually truly intelligent in the way that humans are. Mm -hmm. However, the counter argument to that is our brains essentially do this. And what makes it different, right? Like our brains, all they are doing is taking in inputs and spitting out outputs. Um, it's a complex system. It is, um, I've, I've seen it described as like, it, 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 our brains are both the room itself and the person inside. It's not separate because like a part of our brain doesn't understand English. Our whole brain as a system understands and responds to English. I don't know how accurate that is as far as neuroscience, but like there's not like a separate entity that understands language. All it is is, 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 um, Everything we've learned up to this point, spitting back out the language that we quote unquote understand, even though we're just responding to stimulus in the same way. So, yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment, right? And that's why it's proposed. Um, and then there's one other one that I wanted to talk about. And there's this guy named Lycan, I believe, who proposes a uh, uh, artificial being named Harry, I think it was, who is indiscernible from another from a biological you know human um who the only difference being you know made up of mechanical parts and bleeds motor oil that kind of stuff but that person that being um you know is has hopes and dreams has emotions has thoughts and feelings goes to work has a problem drinking all this different stuff you know has str struggles with you know life at home all the person foibles and, and, and difficulties that we understand. Um, and at the question is, once you learn that that being, Harry, has motor oil for blood, does that somehow make him not a person, right, to us? Do we, do we look at that and say, okay, that's not a person, even though everything else is ostensibly the same? I think that's what this story is sort of getting at as well. Yeah. That's, that's closer to what's going on here. And I think that 
it depends on perception. It depends on what you consider to be. First of all, a person is is different than like life, I would say. Like, would you consider it to be like independently? So you're saying like sentience versus versus being alive. So sentience is another big question. What does it mean to be sentient? At what point are animals considered sentient versus not like insects? Is a beetle sentient? Is a dog sentient? Is an ape sentient? I was thinking about this too with this story is like this void that's left behind by whatever family member, even if it's this pet and the, or a pet or like in this case, it's a it, not a pet, but a uh, sort of assistant AI and that like grief that's left behind. But I think we, we should touch back on in, that in a little bit, because if you're feeling that grief, aren't you feeling the void left behind by something that was alive or independently interacting with the world? You know, is that is that something that is just passing the Turing test? Right. Has it convinced you that it's a person, even though it's not? So and I think that's the question that's being raised, right? Uh, ultimately, by this story. Um, some people, especially if you are a person with some, a religious belief, and, and if you're listening to this, you might be <laughs> yelling this at us, um, would bring up the idea of a soul and say, well, you know, we have souls. People have souls. That's what that's what's different about us. Um, so, you know, setting aside the question of whether or not, uh, there is a God and like, if that's a real thing, um, if there was a God who imbued humans with souls at some point in their development, maybe from the jump, you might argue, why couldn't that God imbue an artificial being with a soul? There's nothing stopping him from doing that. Stopping. So, so the, the soul argument doesn't hold up even if you grant that maybe it's real, there's nothing that says that Yang, for example, in this wouldn't have been imbued with a soul from God. So ultimately, I, I don't think that necessarily answers the question either. Yeah. I mean, my personal outlook on it is I'm more open to these these machines eventually developing to the point that it's indiscernible and them being considered people. But I do think that there is like um, obviously a logical puzzle that has to be figured out before then like it's like um for example if amazon creates some indiscernible artificial intelligence that they then put into a body that also you cannot tell the difference between human the human body and this this created body what at what point is it like you said inputs being put in by a company and at what point does it actually bend the expectations to the point that it is self-thinking and self um and i think that that's one of the major things for me is like when an entity is able to of course have free thought like the free thought thing is hard to, to obviously nail down but when it does have free thought what what like governance system is it is it still being controlled by you know like at some mm. point like how how do we know that it's fully disconnected from the network and not and not like still just a part of this larger entity well you've brought up ethical concerns right like yeah at what point do we need to consider them human this is i think a real question that we're going to i think in our lifetimes see discussed on the floor of like congress right like people talking about okay we're getting these more and more advanced ais at what point do we need to start granting them legal rights? I think it's going to be messy too. I think that it's going to be a longer period of time before they get rights than the rational thinking person will feel like is correct or right or you know morally the right thing to do. Uh, because historically, like people have to, the, the entities have to fight for rights for a long time 
to be considered, you know, the, right. the on, on the same level. So no, it's going to be mean, a difficult it, struggle, I think. You look back at human history and there's been many sorts of things that people have used to dehumanize and to say, this is not a real person and therefore doesn't deserve rights, right? We've seen this time and time again. And uh, yeah, I agree. Usually there's a lag before uh, we sort of catch up to that. And I think that absolutely is going to be here. And in fact, I mean, this is rife for science fiction writers, right? And in fact, I think it's it's um, going to maybe be even more of a hurdle because of how different AI at least begin and the fact that we create them. And I think that that is something that I find very interesting too. Like we imbue them with this quote unquote life and sentience. So at what point are we willing to admit that we are capable of creating life in that way, a sentient life? And as I said, like I'm more open to considering these machines and and these entities to be people sooner, I think, than most. But the thing that's scary is who created ultimately the the AI and what their lean was. Because what if, I think humans, there's something about humans and humanity that there is this sort of urge to do the right thing, or at least you know morally the right and wrong thing. And just the capability and the possibilities of what something like this could be capable, could potentially do, especially if not programmed to think with that directive. What's the directive called where it's sort of like, for the greater good. Um, yeah, there's a, I think you're talking about, I want to say it's Asimov had these like three, three laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. There's some, some like, like there's some rules that have to be put into place to ensure, because ultimately like when these beings are up and running and fully capable and can replicate themselves, we will be basically at the mercy. And I think that's the biggest fear for people will be at the mercy of these things that we've created because they'll be infinitely smarter, infinitely more powerful, you know, I just looked it up. It is Isaac Eismoff. Um he, he proposed the three laws of robotics, which are, one, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So this is his proposed laws of robotics to sort of fight against what we're talking about. I think it's a smart starting place, but the the rules still don't. So if someone, if if a robot has been purchased or whatever to, and now we're talking about robots, this isn't even necessarily the same exact thing, but it kind of is. So say you purchase it and you happen to also be a serial killer and someone's chasing after you and attempting to subdue you or kill you or whatever because that's what we've you know the policing of humanity is like something that that like finding finding the dark the darkness and and trying to like snuff that out maybe not necessarily killing but capturing and all of that within that it says that by an action no human can come to harm by this robot's inaction so it's like you're effectively creating bodyguards for evil people also yeah oh i see what you're saying yeah potentially um it's complicated and it's a big question. And honestly, I think we can't get into it <laughs> fully because we need, we have stuff to talk about and uh, we probably need to move on. But I just wanted to like put those all on the table and maybe we can touch back in on them as we go through the story and the, and the film, which I think both are, are, are touching on it. And specifically, I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that the reason Mika is Chinese, at least partially might have to do with this Chinese room thought experiment. 
because the question of the thought experiment is, does the person know Chinese? Is the person essentially Chinese? And that's that becomes a big question in the movie as well for Yang. Like, is Yang Chinese? And um, that, you know, that's that's like another side of this thought experiment that's very interesting. Well, because it goes beyond what it means to be alive and it goes to what it means to be Asian specifically. So it's like, even if Yang was created in Asia and given all of these cultural knowledge points, there's a point that's made about the tea at some point in the film. We'll get to that. But the this idea of like understanding everything about the tea, but not being able to appreciate it in the same way a human can. Right. Which is sensory. Um, I had a big question in the movie about whether or not uh, Yang can can taste and can what senses does Yang have? Yeah. I was unclear. And I think that. it's intentionally left open ended. Right. Like that was a, a, a smart decision, in my opinion. So so for, I just want to say for me, um, I, this is a question I find endlessly fascinating. And I my my position on it, I think, does shift and morph over time as as I'm presented with new data, because I'm not someone who tends to lock in a belief and and not leave it open to interrogation. But I feel like we ourselves as people are biological machines with brains that are complex computers able to regard self, to learn and feel emotion and you know experience reality through our senses. If there was a machine built the same to do those same things to me that is an equal being of sentience what regardless of anything else because i don't think there's anything particularly special about us other than the fact that we're rare as far as we know um i don't i don't believe that humans are somehow like magical and there's something that makes our biology inherently superior to the mechanics and, and electricity and programming of a machine. Do you know what it is for me? And I agree with you on that point. And I, I was just thinking of something that, that would be the threshold for me as well is you mentioned that we're basically computers and we can do all of these fascinating things and we have all this inherently built into our systems. What the AI would need to hit is that incredibly complex minutia of like, we can feel all these different emotions. Yes, they're not, but it's not like a binary thing. It's not just like anger. There's like, there can be this anger mixed with this. And it's, it's this variation in the way that all of these things come together in a really complicated way that I don't think we even can get close to technologically creating yet. That, that I think will be the sort of threshold to where it becomes the exact same to me is when technology gets to the point that we can replicate how complex our bodies are. Sure, but you could also argue, you know, babies. You could argue people with severe mental disabilities um, who maybe can't experience things in the same way. Uh, yeah, babies who have not who have not matured. We still we still consider them to be people. Yeah, that's just considering emotions, though. But what I'm speaking of also is just like your body on its own is doing incredibly like just like you think of at the cellular level, like what what how many crazy things are happening. And yeah. like, but is I don't, that does that by definition is is it your cells that make you a person? No, no, no. But I just mean the processes, the the number of pro the millions and millions of processes, the synapse firing in your brain, like all of those. I agree. People are inc incredibly complex and amazingly um, beyond even our understanding in some ways of like how complex a human being is. However, I don't know that that complexity isn't required.
for sentience for them to be considered the exact same as us i would say because like yeah well that's i guess we're talking about two different things right yeah. being considered exactly the same but also like we have we grant rights to like animals right like no one say a dog is the same as a person but there are laws against someone just going around and murdering all the dogs they see because we say that you know these are you know Adam, you could you know, this gets into like veganism and stuff you could argue about cows and all the other things that we do kill but like this is a big question. Like, what, <laughs> what, you know, what kind of rights do they do these intelligences deserve? Yeah, and with a lot of animals, I think it has to do with the level of emotional understanding too. Right, like, but yeah. doesn't it feel like such an arbitrary? It does. Yeah, yeah. That's why, like, I, I, I feel like if I was uh, stronger in my convictions, I would be a vegan. I'm just, I'm just not. <laughs> like, I, I, I just, I don't. I know. mean, we talk about how intelligent and like emotional octopi are. Yeah. Now you're touching on stuff I like. <laughs> this is a big this is a big part of my book <laughs> that I'm that I've been writing. Cephalopods. It seems arbitrary for sure when we just sort of handpick this and that. Why not arbitrarily consider at some point machines or AI to also be, you know, worthy of protection? Yeah. And, and at some point we will have to make that decision. And yeah, this story is maybe proposing a future where um it's gone past the point where it probably should have been done, especially in the movie. So a little bit before we leave the before we leave the story along behind, because I do want to talk about the film. What do you want to talk about with the story that really stood out to you? I think, like I mentioned, one of the, the things to me that that stands out is it does sort of start with this comedic, like sort of what if premise where it's like, uh, what if your what if your Alexa broke, but it was like more complex and it was able to do all these things and you had to take it to be fixed. But then by the end and your, your kid considered it a sibling. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. then by the end, you are understanding more emotionally like what this thing whether you believe it's a person or a thing meant to your life in a way and so at some point it doesn't even matter anymore that whether you think it is or is not it's because it's like how you're perceiving it if you perceive it as something that's important to your life and has changed the life of maybe your child or you in general like these things can you can create I, I don't know like i use my airpods every day i feel like i have like an emotional attachment to my airpods because they provide something that that helps my everyday life but if they broke would you give them a funeral <laughs> no no and that's the point right but at what point would you you know where yeah yeah no i think you I, I totally agree this story is all about the meaning that humans give to things right like our ability to fall in love and to grant personhood to all kinds of stuff is well documented, right? Um, this is something that that we have seen time and again. People do, and that's kind of what hap what is happening here. But the 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 contra to that that is is repeatedly proposed because that seems cold, right? That seems like we shouldn't do this. These things are not people. However, the story is also saying like we don't understand what people really are. We have a very limited understanding of our reality. We can't even understand other human beings because we make judgments about them, the, the neighbor George being an example here. And so ultimately our main character comes back around to like, we're going to give the, uh, Yang a funeral and we're going to recognize how important he was to our lives. And then there's this like weird resurrection that happens where we see the voice box ex extracted and Mika conversing with Yang at the end. And I had a million questions. Is does this version of Yang have all of Yang's memories? Is this Yang's mind intact, or is it just a, a an Alexa now style machine that can respond, 
but has no memory and has no personality? I mean, it's a good question. Like I took it to be the former. Like I took it to be Yang this whole time, this idea of because it was looked like something we, we perceive as a person you were starting to think of it as a person and that the question that's being asked here at the end, if, if everything's the exact same and then it's just becomes a thing that sits on the table and speaks to you, is that the same thing? And is like, that also like, a person? Yeah. Now that it has no body. These are all big questions. And um, I, I love that this story is sort of asking all these questions and then admitting uh, sort of a lack of understanding and saying like, that's, that's what we should ultimately take away is that we don't know and be willing to keep our minds open to uh, it. And, and something that's picked up more in the film, but something that is is sort of l- the groundwork is laid here was Yang was doing things that they couldn't necessarily understand or explain, like the bugs. He was sort of collecting bugs. Baseball glove taken home from the game. Right. Or at least at least the people observing it didn't understand it. Maybe Yang did have some sort of understanding of what it, what what he was doing. Well, the the bugs speci- like I think is he's sort of looking at these shells, right? They're dead bugs, and he's looking at them in a way that he's like, "What am I when I'm no longer here?" And just like these bugs, like something is left behind. Yeah. Well, that becomes a thing in the movie for sure. That's less clear in the story, and that's the thing. The story's twenty pages long. It's one of the shortest, I think, short stories we've read, or at least it moved really quickly for me. Um, and because of that, like a lot of this stuff is sort of asked beyond the page. It's like, you know, it's, it, it's up to the reader how much of this stuff they want to engage with. And the, and the, the story doesn't provide a lot of, a lot of answers to these questions. So ultimately like shout out to, to Weinstein here. I think this is a really interesting story. Um, I, I, it's talking about a lot of stuff that i that I like to talk about, at least especially with that story in Reckoning. Um, and it, it proposes a lot of fascinating questions and i think uh it's really cool that it got made into a movie i yeah i agree i i was really happy i read it it flew by i didn't feel like there was any i was really sucked into it you know it's one of those stories where it's this has got this really fun premise it's it's still interacting with ai which is a subject that we both like but in a way that felt unique in a way that felt different and was asking different questions so i appreciated it for that reason and then Yes, getting to the movie, um, there's a lot to love here for me. So I'll start with the filmmaker because we've already talked about him a little bit, but I just am really fascinated by this person. So this film, After Yang, was written, directed, and edited by Kaganada. He's a South Korean-born American filmmaker. He is known for his video essays that analyze the content, form, and structure of various films and television series. The essays frequently use narration and editing as lenses and often highlight a director's aesthetic. Kaganada the name is a pseudonym, is a regular contributor to Sight and Sound magazine and is frequently commissioned by the Criterion Collection to create supplemental videos for its home video releases. He's also written and directed uh, a film called Columbus that came out in 2017. His identity is nearly unknown. So he does, he attends his screenings, he attends marketing for them and everything like that. But I I think I found his name, I wasn't looking super hard, but I don't honestly, I don't, I don't want to reveal it just because right. i think it's maybe, this maybe is a, there's a reason that kaganada has done this and there's a lot wrapped up in this identity thing here uh that i was reading he says that it's a moniker taken from kogo nada a frequent screenwriter of yasujiro ozu who i was mentioning before um so this person was a frequent collaborator and he screen wrote a lot of ozu's films in a 2018 interview with the financial times he stated if i'm honest the pseudonym was about being an asian american too There is something about being an immigrant in America and having the power to name yourself. He immigrated from South Korea as a child and was raised in Indiana and Chicago. As of 2022, he resides in L.A. So I wanted to to, uh, mention uh, a friend of mine, Monty Lin, 
has a short story called Unnamed that appears in uh, Cast of Wonders, which is an audio uh, magazine. You can listen to this story. Um, and it talks a lot about this idea of names, the way they tie you to your culture and being Asian American. So if you would like to explore more of that, I would recommend that. And I will link it in the show notes. He would have been a good person to have on this episode had I known that that's what this was all about. Right. The problem is I didn't know that. <laughs> well, uh, Kaganada also um, explained to Filmmaker Magazine, he likes Chris Marker's idea about your work being your work. That's part of the reason why for the pseudonym. And uh, he said, I've also never identified much with my American name, which always feels a little strange to see or hear. And I'm quite fond of heteronyms. So I wanted to talk about Carganata's video essays because this is the, I, I love this kind of stuff. This is some of my favorite stuff on the internet. Just seeing how artistic minds up, like interpret other people's work, and I and I just think that it's always useful to me. I always feel that it gives me a new perspective, and I, I wanted to talk about this. His video essay work typically showcases a particular theme or aesthetic that I that I mentioned. Um, some examples of these are his videos on. Uh, American director Wes Anderson, who's known for using unusually symmetrical framing in his films. So uh, this is one of the ones I was talking about. He sort of draws dividing lines throughout the frames and shows like just how precise these can be and and what it's conveying and why he's doing it. Um, because I think people like that sort of dollhouse look and they like that symmetry, but they don't necessarily understand like the reasoning behind it. Um, so I find I found those those essays to be really interesting. And, and that that takes the idea of a filmmaker being responsible for everything in the frame and everything having a meaning to a different level and having it develop and become a style. Um, because it, it's one thing to say, like, this is how I want the audience to feel. And it's another thing to be recognizable for the ways that you can use a certain technique to evoke different emotions uh, repeatedly. So I think that's always something cool to check out. His video essays are formed through the juxtaposition of images conveying thoughts through a particular arrangement of clips. In an interview with Nashville Scene in March 2015, Kaganata likened creating video essays with preparing sushi. With sushi, every cut matters, and so do the ingredients. Those two ongoing choices are the difference, what you select and how you cut it. In comparing written essays with visual essays, Kaganata noted how words form precise observations of ideas, while visuals can convey a particular idea without providing a definite ex explanation. He explained that if you want to delve deep into theory, texts are the perfect medium. However, I'm making visual essays. I treat words as supplementary. That's cool. I, I really like that. And that deals with like the difference in medium, right, that we talk about all the time. Yeah. And the idea of like a video essay versus a written essay is not something I had f fully thought about, but he's totally right. Like there is, especially like the less the, you know, voiceover tells us and the more we're just left with what we're seeing, um, we're left to interpret our own things. Yeah. And I think it can be difficult early on. I actually, funny enough, saw that he was saying when he first watched an Ozu film, he did, he kind of bristled against it because it was slow and it didn't make a lot of sense to him. And then his later, later on, he, he, you know, understood more of the language of film and understood what Ozu was doing and clearly has taken a lot from him as his style sort of, uh, is reminiscent. And then he also, you know, the name, his name even is, is sort of a, a a reference to Ozu. Um, That's really cool. 
I also was looking into like how he got started and how he started doing these these videos. And he said part of it was desperation to create something out of the material of this form that I loved. At the time, I was doing a film studies PhD, but trying to express things in the academic idiom was really a struggle. When I allowed myself to re-enter the world of images, like in editing, that came a lot easier to me. I am sort of obsessive. I was raised to pay attention to forms. I'd have conversations with my father about the form of things. He would have me look at rocks and branches a certain way. No, I like that. And that that plays into the conversation they had about tea in this movie, mm-hmm. which I was probably the high point of the movie for me. There was a couple of really good moments like this. Um, but I, I really love this because you can take it to, to be a discussion about so many other things. Um, not only the nature of what it means to be human and to experience things uh, and understand them fully and connect with them on an emotional level, but yeah, just like the the idea, like as someone who's really into whiskey, um, I kept thinking about that and I kept thinking about beer, right? Like in different consumables, much like tea, where there is like a craftsmanship to them and there is a surface level appreciation and then there's like a if you want to get geeky about it you can get into the terroir and you can get into the um all the little components and the emotions and the subjectivity of your taste and all this stuff and 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 i kept thinking about that when he was talking about tea but then you can extrapolate it out to what you're talking about right like like appreciating art and appreciating movies and appreciating books and how there is a superficial understanding of it and then there's like the deeper like people who devote their lives to really delving into these things and trying to understand every little nuance of meaning and how um, maybe both are valid but um, these are also quite different experiences that people can have with the same product you're interacting with something larger than yourself right the history of something like whiskey or tea or beer like people have been doing this forever and the way that that like history feels when you interact with it and can touch it in that way wine tea for some reason it seems to have a drug in it (laughs) that seems to be the ones we're really interested in (laughs) this idea that he also talks about here with um a desperation to create something out of the material that he loves. Like, I feel like that was part of the reason why I wanted to do a podcast about film that included film as well. Right. Like that opportunity to express yourself and talk about and analyze these things in a different way. Like these video essays for him, I'm sure are super um, formative for him to become the filmmaker he is today. And I feel like the podcast has been a similar kind of thing for me. It's just like a desperation to want to continue to talk about the form and right. like, um, you know, a lot of the stylistic things that go along with the form of, of filmmaking. Same. Uh, we we both approach this podcast from a place of love, I think. Like we, we both love our art forms. And I think that love spills over into the other. Like, I, I also love movies in maybe a slightly different way. And you also love stories and, and novels, even though it maybe isn't your prime thing, right? But we both approached the the podcast from that position. And uh, you can look at this entire podcast as, as, as a, yeah, an, an act of love and devotion to our art forms, I think. Uh, I like that. Yeah, so let's move into the plot now. Um, I'm going to read this in, I'll read half and then then we'll kind of react to it. So Jake and Kira live with their adoptive daughter, Mika and Yang, a previously owned robotic child they purchased from certified reseller Second Siblings, rather than from his original maker, Brother and Sisters Incorporated. When Yang becomes unresponsive, Jake goes on a mission to repair him. 
brothers and sisters recommend replacing Yang, which means his body will decompose. Not wanting to upset Mika, Jake becomes determined to save his robotic child. In a flashback, Yang reassures a curious Mika that she is still part of the family despite being adopted. Jake takes Yang to a cheap repairman named Russ who discovers what he claims is a hidden camera inside of Yang. Jake takes the camera to a museum specialist named Cleo, who tells him that it is, in fact, Yang's memory bank. Jake goes home and watches Yang's memories. They include short clips from every day of Yang's life, including his time with a woman named Ada. The next day, Jake takes Yang to Cleo. In a flashback, Yang becomes sad about his inability to truly live. Uh, even that's kind of an interpretation, right? Um, as we assume that what we're seeing is true. Um, but I, I, one thing I want to start with is there's the movie opens with this dance during the the credit, like sort of opening credit roll, and the dance is wild. It's funny. We see Colin Farrell and you know all of our actors just really getting into it. It's fun. It's yeah. It's all these different families. It's I was so excited. Like, I loved it, but I do think it kind of sets up. It sets you up for like the wrong movie. Like that's not what this movie is. And uh, the whole movie after this is just this melancholy, slow, you know what I mean? Exploration of what it means to be a human and, and what it means to be Asian and all of that. And whereas this opening is very flashy and fun and um, has a lot of cutting, um, it's, it is, you know, and I would love to hear Gaganata talk about it because he's a video essayist and I'm sure he put a lot of thought into this. Um, but like, why do this when it, it, to me, it is kind of a complete 180 from what the rest of the movie is. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because there's no way I wasn't going to talk about this. Um, <laughs> so the, I have my interpretation and then I'll read what I found about it. Okay. So my look at it after having finished the film is the family is still whole. Yang is still there. They're, they're, this is them enjoying their lives together. Th- this is what it's like. And then that gets broken and we have to deal with the grief and the, everything that comes from that and that, that void that's been left behind. And it feels very human also. Dancing is a very human th- thing to do, even though he does seem to be a little more robotic with his movements than everybody right. else. Um, it's it, it just like goes to show that like he's doing this long with them, bonding with them. And that's sort of what I took away from it. And and yeah, the, the everything that comes after is sort of in reaction to like the, the hole that's left behind. Um, but I did read in some behind the scenes stuff that the global virtual dance off sequence in the opening was inspired by Yasujiro Ozu's early summer from 1951 and Kid with the Golden Arm from 1979. Early Summer features a family that's really in sync in its earlier scenes as they're having breakfast and going about their daily chores. Then the rest of the film is about the disillusion of that family. According to himself, Kaganata always loved that idea of seeing a family in sync, so the dance scene was a literalization of that. Kid with the Golden Arm, on the other hand, a film Kaganata watched as a kid, has a, a title sequence in which every gang member in their metallic suits showed their specialty. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I I get that, and I like, and I see why he did it. Um, I do think my my sort of resistance to it stance, as much as I love it, I'm like yeah, the expectations, like you said, it sets yeah. up a weird expectation for the movie you're going to get that you that this is not what you get. Um, it's because not because of the in syncness, but because of how bright and fun and funny, like they're having these people do some ridiculous dances, um, and. Ultimately, I actually don't want this scene removed. I like the scene um, in one of my criticisms of the movie overall, and it's a gentle criticism, 
is that I I wanted more of a tonal variety. I wanted some more scenes where I could have fun. I wanted some more scenes that were reminiscent of this opening throughout. And I I, I kind of missed the whimsy that, that, that this proposes at the beginning. And I understand it's more about the being in sync. But um, I did find the, the um, basically an hour and a half of melancholy to be a bit much. Seems like critics mostly like this movie, but there was some pushback. And I'm wondering if that's where it's coming from. Because I think if you're someone who thinks seriously about film and, and story, like you're not going to watch this movie and think it's, think it's awful and think that um, the person making it was doing it as a cash grab or something. It's like, no, this is an A24 film. It's highly artistic. Um, but in some ways maybe gets in its own way. And, and I think that's maybe what some of these critics are responding to. I, I think that, um, you'd be surprised by the scores though. Like the met, the critical scores are like in the eights and the eighties and, and in those numbers. Well, that makes sense to me. It's a good movie. Yeah. It's the audiences who are a little bit lower because well, sure. again, it's, it's <laughs> throwing you for a loop. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, when I watch an A24 film, I'm also like really open to, to whatever is going to happen. And I think that like. The expectation setting thing can be can definitely like be a stumbling block. But to me, it's more of like, I don't know, it's a starting point, And then we see this like falling out. And I do think there are a lot of A24 films that do have this sort of not oppressive, but like a, a lot of emotional weight to them where like the, this this story is like slow moving and there's not a lot of exciting or fun parts to it. And I think that that's like there are movies like that that exist in A24. It didn't throw me it off off at all, and and I appreciated the scene, but I can see where you're coming from. Okay, yeah. So let's talk more about what what the the changes that are introduced early here, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea of Yang having memories is not really delved into in the story. Um, we get this character Ada introduced, which I was quite surprised to see. Um, we get a change up of the order. He goes to the the uh, Geek Squad style guys first, and then goes uh, to to his neighbor's recommendation second. Um, and he takes Mika along for the ride and for for a lot of this stuff, and that adds an emotional weight um, ultimately to the story. And that adds that adds something that I, I thought was really interesting, right? Having her there to provide that perspective. And ultimately, I think that's necessary um, because for whatever reason, Jake, to me, is a little flat. I, I really couldn't figure out how he felt. He would say things that would make me feel like, okay, he, he understands and he feels genuine emotion about Yang. But so often I felt like it was such a subdued performance by Colin Farrell and whether that's hit, you know, him or the direction, I don't know. And I guess I just wanted a little more emotion so I could understand the character. Like, I feel like Jake is a character as much as he's kind of the focus. I don't really know much about him other than he seems to like tea and it seems to be something that like, you know, he has this conversation with Yang, which again was like a high point of the movie because I felt like I, I finally connected with the character. Um, but that far into the film, I still didn't really know anything about Jake. Um, and, and, and to me, that was another slight stumbling block. It's like, I, I wanted a little more like I, uh, Yang is, I don't know, maybe it's set up to be like, 
by comparison to Yang, um, he sh- we're showing like a fairly fairly flat affect person. I think that's exactly what it is. That was going to be my 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 perspective on it. Was we're we're seeing someone who isn't taking full advantage of living life and enjoying it and 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 you know living it to the fullest. And then we see someone who who wants and yearns for that but could never have it almost like the the as far as enjoying things like tea and, and that kind of thing it's depressing man because we're seeing this world that they create in the in the movie i think brilliantly just through like hints the world building that's going on is a, a you know a world where everything you know there's all these self-driving cars which i'm a big proponent of um we got the you know it seems like there's been some engineering in these cities to make them more sustainable. We see trees growing on a bridge, for example, at one point. Um, their home is, is incredibly cool. Too. Their home's beautiful. It's very nature's kind of a theme. There's a lot of plant life. And yet it seems like there's this disconnect where all of the characters in this family seem depressed and seem disconnected. And and a little bit of that happens before the dance. If there was no scene before the dance, that'd be one thing. But there is a brief scene where I feel like the conflict between um, uh, Jake and his wife, which is it Kyra in the movie as well, um, is established that there is some rockiness there. Basically, we're in reference to Yang and the role that Yang has in the family. So it seems like despite this utopian, fairly, society... Um, there's still there's still problems, and and that makes for interesting story, and that's cool to to see that you can do that. I think it's realistic too, right? Like even even if our world was utopian, human nature is gonna. It's depressing though, right? Like yeah, I don't. We know. can't escape it. We're not gonna be able to escape our our you know baser instincts. I think like we're always gonna find something to, unfortunately, like focus on that that might not that might be more negative or he gets to he gets to like have a tea shop where he gets to talk about the thing that he loves, but. People, I guess, don't care. Oh, people definitely are, people, not. People want this crystal tea that is like this artificial thing, and he wants to like keep the the craft alive. Um, it's interesting because the story was written in 2010. The movie comes out more recently, but like the appreciation of like craftsmanship and like that stuff is actually really hot right now. I feel like that's actually something people really like. So, in in certain circles, at least, it's also like she. He seemed like he had that crystal tea in his store, but he was just out of it at the time. And the woman had no, she had no sort of empathy for that. She was like pissed off and like, oh, service. I like, thought he just, I thought he didn't carry it. And then later on, he's like, try, I felt like he was just trying it for the first time when he has Oh, it maybe later. I'm wrong. Okay. There's, there's something, there's a little bit of context to the story that I wanted to give you. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I feel like there's tones of it, but I didn't get it until I saw in the behind the scenes. And apparently there's memorabilia on the bulletin board in Russ's repair shop that reveals that the story takes place after a six decade long war between U- the U S and China. Now that is referenced a little bit in the story. Um, I don't know how, if it's specifically, but like there's this, yeah, this idea of like the, the Chinese adoption has something to do with the war and like. Anti-Asian racism is a big problem, um, and it's something that you know we've been dealing with, and and I feel like Kaganada has to be talking about the Asianness and the like. Am you know is Yang Asian? Is Yang Chinese? Um, what does it mean to be an American-born um, Asian American? Right, like uh, for Mika trying to connect to her culture, 
Um, all of that, I think, is way more pronounced in the movie than it was in the story, which makes sense because the, ultimately the story is written by, you know, a white dude, Weinstein. And this is this to me feels like it's a lot more about that, um, which shifts the focus again a little bit um, away from the artificial intelligence. And that's one of the things I let's maybe let's get into it as we get to the end. But the difference in the ultimate message behind the story I found um, in, in the movie. Is there anything else from this first half that we want to talk about? Um, any other changes? Well, he, yeah, he met with this, um, the museum curator and, um, the way that she like, so we, you know, in the story we get the sort of conservative mechanic and then we get the buttoned up sort of, uh, corporate America guy, which by the way, before I forget, there's an, there's a detail in the story, um, where the neighbor drives a hybrid and he says it as if the neighbor is driving like a Hummer. Right. And I just thought that was funny because it shows like the shifting in like, I, I guess the implication being that like a hybrid still uses gasoline and everybody else must drive electric now. Um, but yeah, it's like, oh, he drives a hybrid. <laughs> you know, like I don't I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, and then we get this character who is seems well-meaning and wants to explore what this AI means and wants to explore these techno sapiens. Sapiens, yeah. And um but is doing it in such an academic way that it's like removing any empathy from it. And I thought that was another really interesting character to add in. And the commentary that's being made there of museums, for one, museums and the the sort of gross history with that and sort of taking a culture and putting it in a place for typically white people to experience. And then also just the way that you can be so invested in trying to learn the secrets and learn some of this other stuff you you'll be too removed to understand the humanity of it and i think there's right. something well, that's being yeah. talked about with like um you know an ai sort of interacting with the world and even even us humans can be removed from emotion at times if it means understanding the knowledge one well, i love that the the question of the family's privacy is raised by uh the the mechanic but ultimately we come back to the question of yang's privacy and what and and putting him on display in the museum, I like that that's dealt with. Like ultimately, the decision is made to do so, but not to put the body on display, even though the memories are going to be there. And it's not all memories; it's only approved ones. I like the return to that and how it's complicated, right? It's not a, it's not a complete refutation of it. It's not saying there's no value in this, because ultimately there is value in it and i think jake does recognize that now his exploration of the memories i wanted to shout out because i thought this was beautifully done it looked like he was traveling through the universe and approaching these little galaxies or stars each one itself a memory and then he dives into it and the idea of that there are each these little like three second clips i don't know how much it holds up to like scrutiny as far as like why would they ever design it this way but I loved it as far as visually, right? Because it gave an opportunity for montages. Exactly what Koganada seems to be really good at. And it's these these montages of um, disparate images that come together to create a feeling and to create meaning that we have to interpret, even though there's very little written or, or like there's very little dialogue yeah. um, usually in these scenes. Some of this... Uh... I mean, like it, the comparisons have to be made, right? Like this feels a lot like in, in ways like a Black Mirror episode in the ways that it, or like um, um, we talked about the Turing test, like Ex Machina came to mind. Another. I mean, this is a rife subject for sci-fi. 
Right. There's lots of stories about artificial intelligence. Yeah, but there's so so each one sort of approaches it in a different way. I think the ex machina comes from a sort of tech standpoint. And then a lot of Black Mirror episodes are more like the horrors of what can be. And this can be there. There are angles of this story. Yeah. Black Mirror and Ex Machina both have a darkness to them. And in Ex Machina, you don't know that that's what it's about. But ultimately, it arrives there. Um, and this. Yeah, this is different in that regard. Right. But there is a little bit of darkness to this, but it does seem like it's not the the main focus of it. A, lo- a bit of a horror sort of corporate uh, overlord kind of thing. If you wanted to look into like the conspiracy theory guy. Yeah, but that's not that's not like the focus of it. Ultimately, I feel like that's kind of set aside. Yeah. yeah. I think the thing that also sets this film apart is just like that that use of introspection and contemplation and then these memories and the way that you play with these. And there are Black Mirror episodes like the memory thing specifically reminds me of a Black Mirror episode. There's a story. Apparently, I didn't read it, but but I I read um, in a description of this book, uh, Children of the New World that we have that had this story in it. There's another story about a, a company that sells artificial memories, I think is what it was. So it seems like, uh, and this is something I didn't talk a lot about uh, Weinstein, but I did actually read an interview with him where he was talking about like what he writes. And the, the question was like, what do you call what you write? And he says he calls it speculative fiction, which I like is a term. It's sort of an umbrella term um, because I guess he does occasionally write like magical realism, things like that. He teaches writing. Um, and a lot of people refer to this more as like literature, like literary writing, but ultimately I like that he embraced speculative and he said that like that community has, has embraced him, even though it seems like his background is more academic and literary, like, um, with the kind of reading that you would, you would get in college. So, um, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me that, that he, where he landed on that. And I like that he embraced it rather than pushing against it. Well, the beginning of the story did did feel very literary to me. Like as we started it, I was like, oh, a very literary feel, very realistic. And and then, you know, there's a little bit of that satire to it. But but something about like really tethering these stories to like our world. I just love the blending, right? Like we see the, the George Saunders story we covered, like it's definitely blending with sci-fi. Like I, I like to see I, I want to see these walls start to come down more and more because I, I think they are fairly artificial and uh I think they are coming down to my my (laughs) my perspective on it is that they're they're that's definitely starting to become the case more. Um, But getting back to these memories, um, I loved like you said it was a chance for Kaganata to use his montage powers, but also he got to play with like different filmic looks. Like you're getting like different, much softer, almost like through a screen look, Um, and then you're getting like some ratio. He plays with like aspect ratios at times and the way that he plays with the the memories and and and, and like you said the the interpretation of some of them there was one that was just like tragic uh that we were getting through yang because he like sort of jake over time like breaks into different uh portions of the memory the, and and like he eventually goes into like the alpha which we see that's the big twist is that so much of he's lived other lives that we weren't unaware of and he's much older and seemingly has gone through a lot more but the uh the just the tragedy of 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 having done this like whatever we think jake and the family is going through he's done that over and over and over um and just the tragedy of a yeah. of a, a person or i, a, I wish entity like yang. i want to know how old how old is yang how long is this you know but these are all ultimately not that important questions it's just like the technical side of me wants to understand okay so the second half here 
Jake tracks down Ada, who is revealed to be a clone. She confirms Jake's suspicions that Yang has been had been in a relationship with her. Jake and Kira decide to move on, letting Yang decompose and donating his memories to the museum. In a flashback, Yang and Kira discuss the improbability of an afterlife. Jake talks to Yang's previous owner, Nancy, who mentions that Yang was not a new product. Jake discovers a setting on the back of the memory bank that unlocks more of, the, of Yang's memories. They reveal that Yang had lived an entire life before either Jake or Nancy owned him, one in which he developed a relationship with a young woman named Ada. The older Ada is revealed to have cared for the aging mother in Yang's first family. Ada later dies in a car accident. The younger Ada tells Jake that the person in Yang's memories was her great aunt. At night, Mika tells Jake that she does not want to say goodbye to Yang. Jake agrees, and Mika begins to sing a song previously heard in one of Yang's memories. Okay. So let's unpack this, right? Um, the big change, this this previous life where Yang connected with Ada, the original Ada, and we see he he is there through the entire life of this child who grows into like an adult man. Um, and it seems like a very similar relationship, right? Like he was a sibling much in the way he is to Mika here. And then he's resold at some point it seems he's he, he at least goes to a new family and then he again goes to a new family after that is when we actually get to the to the family of the story and it's unclear to me how much of the alpha life he actually remembers i didn't think it i don't think he has a full memory of it right but it seems like maybe some sort of like lingering thing is why he why he approaches the new ada right but I, I didn't get the I didn't get the idea that he like fully remembered his previous life. Agreed. I, I don't think he did. I think that there were there some and, and this gets into that idea of memories and human memories and, and the way that human memories you are change and, and over time and they can't be encapsulated like these memories have been. And so that was another interesting perspective was seeing Jake relive a lot of these moments perfectly through Yang's memories rather than remembering them more vaguely. I was going to ask you about that. Um, so that's that was ultimately where I decided I landed as well. So in these flashback scenes, we get echoes. We get these moments where a line is given and then the line is given a second time and it's a slightly different take. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think what I was getting was one is the memory, the imperfect human memory, and one is maybe the more perfect Yang memory, and the, we're seeing them overlap. But that the thing is, it doesn't really make a ton of sense in the sense that um, you're supposed to only have these three second things. Like you, you shouldn't be able to get an entire memory like this in the setup that we've been given. I don't know if that's a plot hole or if the camera is magical in a sense, so we're able to experience Yang's memories even if the character isn't, who's like got the glasses on. I was unclear on that. But that, unless there's something else going on there that I'm missing, was that your read of that? Like why we're getting that echoing? Yeah, that double, double. And, and that was something where I felt like if audiences didn't pick up what was happening, that could have been frustrating for audiences as well. But I, I yeah, that's exactly what I think was happening was Jake was getting to relive a lot of his his memories and have them like confirmed and then also reaffirm like just how much this character meant. And, and it's also interesting to indicate which three seconds from these days are saved. Because I think that that's importance that Yang, whether consciously or unconsciously, gave to these moments. Absolutely. You only get to choose three seconds from the day that you get to remember. 
Like that's powerful. Right. And he um, there's the moment where he's like taking a picture of them and they're like, come on over. And it's like, you know, book ended in the film. And he, he we get the his perspective. We get to see Jake looking at Yang at the end and you can see him set up the frame and then stand up a little bit and look at the family. And you can tell he's taking the memory in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we get that the relationship that he had with Ada, which I think like shows again, like a sort of humanity and, a, and something that that speaks to like our human experience and it's in a, and it's like a secret romance that also makes him th- me think that he kind of realized that it's not something that he should have been doing necessarily well, i don't, we don't really understand know why. the nature of that love he seems to feel yeah like we interpret it we watch these moments and it looks to me like a romantic love and i think jake interprets it that way but is it something else because once we reveal why there's this connection to ada but like watching her sleep and stuff, it just it felt like a romantic love. But again, is that just the Turing test? Is that just us being fooled? Well, and I love the conversation in the car with Ada where he says, like, were you he, I can't remember the ex- I wish I could remember the exact words. But she says, like, that's such a human because she's a clone and he is he is an oh, AI entity. The, uh, and, the question and, is, did, did Yang want to be a person? Right. And she's like, that's such a human thing to ask, like to, to, to assume that other beings want to be people. And that was profound to me because I thought like that that is how the threshold we're going to get to is we our perspectives might not go or, or the majority of human beings perspectives might not go far enough to understand, to actually understand what it means for these entities to be alive in a way. You know, it's a different it's a different walk of life. Sure. Yeah. We, we might be the ones who fall short eventually. Yeah. No, and that's a great question. And then I, I love that there's this whole like subplot of clones and mm-hmm. their s- status. Because it seems that like, I don't know, it's interesting that there are no there are no children in this movie or story that are the biological offspring of the parents, right? We have an adopted child and then we have the clones. And it seems like cloning has become the hot thing. I think the implication is that there's some infertility in the future. Maybe, but it's never said. It's not said. It also could could be a choice, right? Like it it could, maybe he's proposing, Weinstein, that is, that people, when given the choice, start to start to actually go for the cloning idea of like. I kept thinking about like what it meant, what psychologically it would do to a child if they knew that you were a clone and what that means to be like exactly the same as your parent and like what the expectations. You know what this really gets into though, right? Nature and nurture. Yeah. Because, of course, they're different people. And, like, the daughter, I think, points that out. Like, you can clone somebody, and but if they, if they as soon as they experience life in a different way, they're going to go on a different path and they're going to become different people. And we're, and we're going to see, it's much like the identical twin scenario. Because ultimately, you're just an identical twin. If cloning, if my understanding of it, <laughs> and maybe I'm wrong and the scientists may disagree, but my understanding is that a a perfect clone would be much like a identical twin. I always assumed it would be because even identical twins have some small variations. But I thought that variation all came from if they're truly identical. I thought the variations only came from from upbringing. But like biologically they're identical. I'm I'm not sure. At least they begin identical. I'm not sure either. I guess that's a question for a biologist, I guess, yeah. but um I don't know. It's fascinating, right? And like, ultimately, this is about the difference in experience and like living in a different time and in a different situation and how these clones are all like, we're not the people we were. We're 
different people. And that's like a whole, that could be its whole story itself, right? Like the nature of these clones, you could have a whole story about, about the clone neighbor. <laughs> um, but instead, uh, it's just kind of going on separate. Now, there's a really fascinating part that I want to touch on before we leave it. There's this conversation about the grafting of the, of the tree. And I love that moment from Yang explaining to Mika about being adopted. Um, and then we also get the conversation with the wife with the, about what it means to be alive and if there's anything that happens after and like how there's the point of no return when the the caterpillar essentially dies and then transforms into the butterfly and how for the butter for the caterpillar that's the end but then it's also for everybody else a new beginning and the impossibility of knowing and, and yang makes a point to say like i don't care if yeah. there is nothing after this as well and he's like, I don't know if I've been programmed that way. Yeah, and that was profound too. Um, I think I had that exact line I wrote down. He said, uh, because he said, there's no something without nothing. And I really like that too. That's something that, you know, as, as someone who is agnostic, um, something I think about a lot, right? Like, would I want to die at some point if I was given the option to live forever? And, uh, why, you know, what is the value in, in death and and I think this is just highlighting like meaning is granted to life by the fact that it ends, right? Like but the fact that there is a time limit on it. Um, and that's kind of what he's touching on here, I think. And that's why he's like, I'm okay with the ending because if it doesn't end, then none of this means anything. Yeah. I mean, and, and so the, the story ends in, in a similar kind of way, but we get that big twist where we get to see the Ada relationship and, and all of his memories. And then, but what's different about it, the ending, we don't get the funeral we don't get the voice box and instead we get the decision to donate the memories to the museum, but not the body. He doesn't so that he's not on display. And I, I got the implication there was going to be some sort of funeral. We just don't see it. The, the neighbor's relationship is not as prominent here. It does seem like there's like a moment where we, we feel that George or maybe his name's Russ in the movie. I'm not sure. Um, is is more than he seems to be and actually genuinely wants to be like a friend of of jake um but it's not as prominent as it is in the story so so there are some changes here and 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 i think ultimately it shifts the focus of the story a little bit um if i may i think it um i think yang's personhood if you were to talk about the scales of yang as a person versus not a person in the story i feel like the the scales are more level in the movie. I think the thumb is firmly pressed on Yang as a person. And that's what the effect of the memories are for us. That's what the effect of the decisions we see Yang make and the extrapolations and the feelings that Yang express expresses all of that to me got to the point where at the end I was fully convinced like, yeah, of course Yang's a person. And that changes what this movie is about ultimately. Cause if Yang's now a person, it's more about, how the how he was dealt with the ethics of his situation, and um, you can also start to make it more about the metaphor of being Asian and being Asian American and disconnect from culture. Um, there's there's so many other things that it opens the door to, but it does shift the question a little bit away from is is Yang ultimately a person, which I think the story is more undecided, and in fact ends on a place of of acceptance of I don't know. One of the one of the major things that happens here at the end too that I think solidifies all of this is that in the memories we keep hearing this song 
and uh, it's like in the club. And then I think he's singing it. Yang is singing it at one point. And those are in previous lives of his. And then at the end, we hear Mika singing that song. So there is that bleed from his former life to know the song or at least connect with the song and then teach it to Mika. He has a legacy. Um, his life mattered. That's something that Jake says. And we see that it mattered to Mika. We see that it mattered to Jake. Um, I thought Kyra, I would have liked to see a little more from her perspective. Like I saw her engaging in that conversation, but I, I was unclear on whether or not that completely changed her mind about it. I guess I assumed it did. Because she, she was also very cold throughout and seemed the least caring about Yang. I think she also, yeah, I think she was more worried about her daughter than she was about Yang and what what this was doing to her daughter. And I did like the the uh, the, the story, the movie, um, sorry, um, proposes like, hey, um, maybe we need to be the ones who take more of an active role in our daughter's life and connecting her to her, you know, her, her culture and not offload this onto someone else yeah and i thought that was a great point right like yeah. a, a great like owning up of like yeah this is kind of an abdication of responsibility here a little bit but i do also love the idea of like jake kind of considering yang a son and it's such a sweet moment when he talks about the family business and passing it on to him um but i was unclear on whether or not yang can actually taste i got the implication that he can't it seemed like he 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 drank it and mimicked but ultimately isn't tasting. And it's interesting that that, that decision is made because there's nothing, if, if, if a computer can see and a computer can't hear, there's nothing inherently that stops a computer from being able to, ta to taste and to touch um, and to smell. These are all senses that are converted into electric, electrical uh, signals for our brains. So we're already starting to break through this barrier in our, in our uh, technology. So, yeah, it's more difficult, but to me, like, if Yang could taste and could smell and could do all these other things, does that change the equation fundamentally? Yeah, I think another thing with that is it, all of us experience those sensations differently. And so to program that into a robot is to say, or into an AI is to say, like, figure out what this tastes like or what this smells like to you. And that's like, you know, that gets that weird free will thing where it's like, is this... How, why, why do we perceive things differently? Why is it not just this tastes like strawberries? You know, why do we taste strawberries differently? Well, the you're talking about the sort of subjectivity of reality and how none of us perceive reality the same way. And the, you know, the question of, I mean, this gets down to the idea of like the brain in the jar. Like, how do we know that reality is real and that it's all not just a hallucination? It's all not just a, a, a dream Reality could just be a dream that we're experiencing as a brain in a jar. Yeah. There's nothing that says that that for sure isn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think unless you have anything else, that's a good place to leave it because like a lot of things I think are still unexplained. And I love that about a story like this, right? Like we're, we're just, we're, let's just walk away and say, not sure. Embrace the not knowing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I'll go first if you're cool okay. with that on sure. my, my pick. I'm going to take the film here. And I'm going to take it for the reasons that I think Kaganada is a really fascinating filmmaker. He's doing things that not many can or would be doing in the space. I love how he interpreted the story. I think the story seed obviously needs to get the credit 
the 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 source material needs the credit for what a great premise it was like i said it's just exploring it in a way exploring ai and what it means to be alive in a way that i haven't seen a lot of ai stories do and in a very like possible way like we talked about like some something that feels possible and and tangible in the future but uh I, the, the performances the way that it all came together the way that it is very melancholy and it, it like this is one of those films that i'll be thinking about for a long time see i'll think back to a scene and be able to sort of relive it it's a film that i'd like to watch again because it it feels like it's it's pretty rich with with that sort of um, just a lot of things that I didn't pick up on, like this idea of like the war, like rewatching it, having th- thought about there, this is like a post-war America, it seems after, after uh, they've tried to make some strives towards like environmentalism and, um, you know, being more progressive as a society. It I keep seems. thinking of that, that phrase, you know, this is the, this is the future liberals want. <laughs> there was like a meme, but like it kind of is true for this. This feels kind like of is, yeah. Like and then and of, then yeah. it's just showing like the the still the cracks in that idea of like sure the, you know the, there's it, still problems. There's still problems and and there's always going to be human problems that we have to deal with as families and society and um and I think things will just get more complicated and but ultimately like there's a balancing act that happens as things are added to our lives. I think we gain things and we lose things. So it you know I think this idea of of yang being able to help in a way and become a part of the family is really fascinating to think about and the way that you can sort of again like we i I think of it as like my dog is a part of my family right like i've i've helped i technically we bought this entity that we have in the home and we take care of and helps us emotionally and all of these things and and i know the pet analogy to what could be seen as a a you know, a being as a, a human. you know human being mm-hmm. could is a little weird, but little that's front. like sort of the, the idea of like when you lose a pet, it's the same kind of void as if you lost a human Absolutely. being, yeah. and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it really fascinates me. And overall, I just think Kaganata made this beautiful film, and and I'm gonna be watching whatever he he comes out with in the future. Okay, so for me, I started out reading the story, going like, oh, that was cool. Um, it asked a bunch of big questions that I'm left thinking of didn't it didn't sort of grip me in the way that like um some of the some of my most beloved short stories do like i wasn't like oh this is one of the best short stories i've ever read um it was good but yeah it didn't quite rise to that level um and then i came into the movie thinking like this movie is going to absolutely uh blow it out right it's going to be like it's going to be a a, a no contest because this movie has the chance to expand on all of these really interesting ideas and do something beautiful with them. It's an A24 film. So I was very excited. Um, and ultimately, I really liked the movie. And I think it does all of the things you just described, all the things you just talked about. It made me want, like, go back to the story in my mind a lot, though, and think about all the things that I maybe wasn't giving Weinstein full credit for, like how many interesting topics he's dealing with. And I liked the ambiguity that the story had that the movie sort of shifts away from. Um so so it kind of came back down and they came closer together in my mind and it became more of a question of like, which one of these ultimately do I think is, is best? Um, ultimately, I did decide the movie is where it's at for me. And it's because of a few scenes. It's because of the tea scene. It's because of the uh, butterfly scene, um, the montages. There are a few things that just really sort of elevate the movie into another zone, um, another tier, I guess. And 
the added la- layers of what it means to be Asian American, sort of to be an immigrant or be adopted, to belong, it added a lot of rich texture to the story that I really appreciated, um, even as we moved away from the ambiguity of the original uh, piece. So ultimately, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I, I'm going to give it to the movie. I absolutely would be really interested to see anything else this filmmaker makes, but um this was a fun one, and I love the conversation we were able to have about it. Uh, I love this stuff, and and again, I'll just say, if if you like this, uh, please consider reading my story. What good is a sad backhoe in uh, Reckoning Six, which actually is going to become free to read in in about a month. Um, so if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, I'll definitely post about it. Right now, you have to you have to pay to get the ebook. I think is the only way to read it. So. Um, but it'll be free soon. Um, and yeah, because I think I, I talk a lot about these same kind of topics and yet I approach it from a slightly different perspective because the, the AI in question in my story is a giant digging machine that is not human-like in the way that Yang is. And I, and I delve into like the differences that, 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 that can create. So if that sounds interesting to you, um, man, this was a good one. Uh, I'm glad that we got to do this really introspective thoughtful film and piece because we're going to change uh change directions here a little bit and i guess i'll reveal that at the very end of the episode what our next project's going to be so stick around for that if you enjoyed this discussion and our uh debate about artificial intelligence and what it means to be alive uh please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on um mention this episode and let us know what you thought. Uh, we'd love to hear from you in that way. And it helps get the uh, word out to more potential listeners. Yeah. And be sure to connect with us on social media as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the platforms at ink to film on all of those. Uh, you know, it's a good way to see what we have coming up next. And also, you know, send us messages if you like our stuff. And if you're interested in hearing us talk about a specific a specific story. Yeah, if you also love this stuff the way we just talked about, like we we want to talk with you about it. We you know we I love engaging with people who share share our love for these mediums. Um, also, you can support us on Patreon, and in return, you would get access to a bunch of bonus episodes where we talk about alternate adaptations um, and other things, other experimental things that we've tried. Um, what was our most recent one we just did? Was that Hodorowsky's Dune, or do we do one after that? No, it was the Sandman, and we talked about House of the Dragon. Oh, uh, we talked about the, the, the bonus episodes of Sandman that we uh, we hadn't gotten our original coverage. So if that sounds interesting to you, check out our Patreon. We also have merch on there, like a mug and shirt and stuff like that with alternate uh, artwork. Um, so we'd love to have your support. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So the only thing left to do is to announce our next project. We are returning to Middle Earth so to what is likely to be the last time for a four-episode extravaganza (laughs) on The Hobbit. Uh, We're going to start out by reading the book together, just me and you, and we're going to discuss Tolkien's original novel, and then we're going to dive into the three Peter Jackson films, and we're going to try and bring on a different guest each week to sort of help us along the way, and... um, I don't know. It's I haven't seen them since they originally came out, so I, I'm interested to see how how they hold up. 
I'm going to go in with very open expectations. I'm not going to try to be biased. I'm going to really... My expectations are very low. I'm going to just admit that. (laughs) So I want to be very open. I'm not going to try to bring any baggage. I want to really try to enjoy it and engage with it for what it is. And I'm also going to be doing a lot of background uh, digging to sort of see what went went on with the production and everything. So look forward to that. I'm excited, though. You know, I'm excited to return to Middle Earth. Um, We thought it was a good time because we got the Rings of Power coming out right now, um, which I've only seen one episode of, but I'm going to watch more of um, and you know maybe we can talk about that another time um the only other thing i would say is we i know i want to do a bonus episode on the animated original animated hobbit adaptation um because i love that and i know that i want to make you watch it and uh that'll i think that i'm gonna go ahead and say that's gonna be our september bonus episode yeah so if you're interested in that uh check it out because we, we actually will be releasing it probably before we release all the movie episodes which are gonna spill into october but I think we should watch it early on. So I'm, I'm down for it because it's going to be really fascinating to touch on um, throughout our coverage. Anyway, I'm excited for this. Uh, hopefully you are too. And until next time, keep adapting.